be able to sing the hymn of preparation. I apologize for the morning. These things happen. Leviticus 27 is our scripture text for the evening. Leviticus 27. Hear now the word of God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrate, uh, consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels, and if From five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest And the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. If it is an animal, that man or uh, that men uh, may bring as an offering to the Lord. All that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute or exchange it good for bad or bad for good. And if he at, uh, at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your valuation. And when a man dedicates his house to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand, and if... He who dedicates it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of his field, of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. Uh, a homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. But if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priest. And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee. And he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought to the one who owned it, who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 garaz to the shekel. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. 
And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and shall add one fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, of, whether, uh, of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one who exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And thus concludes the book of Leviticus. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this great book. And we thank you for this great conclusion to this great book. And we ask you now through the preaching that you might shed light on your word and illumine it for our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Uh, to behold the good things that you were telling us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we wrap up what is our, uh, our study of Leviticus. Uh, and just uh, by way of information, we'll begin next week, Lord willing, uh, a study in Acts. Though just Acts 1 through 15. Uh, and if everything goes according to plan, then we'll resume our study of the Pentateuch. So we're taking a break from the study, but... Uh, we will be returning to it. We've made great progress. We've gone through Genesis, Genesis Exodus, now Leviticus. <laughs> I remember thinking, and I said this, I think, at the beginning, how could a man ever preach Leviticus? And now I find myself thinking, how could a man ever preach and not preach Leviticus? It really is a wonderful book. It is a book which is tailor-made for preaching. It's the Hebrews of the Old Testament. If I said Exodus was the gospel of the Old Testament, well, he, well Hebrews of the Old Testament is Leviticus. It's the book... Uh, which tells us the most about the grace of God to sinners and the need for, to persevere in faith and so on, uh, the need to worship God. If you remember the structure of the book, things end uh, like this. There is what is called the holiness code, code in the second half of the book. Uh, so the beginning of the book has to do with the worship of God. The second half of the book has to do with our response. God has saved us and we are to respond in obedience we are to be holy even as he is holy. Uh, the thing that is emphasized here at the end is the calendar. Chapters 23 through 25. That's the last element of the holiness code. Chapter 24 is the heart of Levitical holiness where you find the emphasis on Sabbath worship. If you were to read the first half of that chapter. And chapter 26 is the application of the holiness code. Where God is outlining blessings for obedience cursings for disobedience and the promise of restoration on the note or in the case of repentance. In many ways, we could say that is seemingly a fitting close. Chapter 26. Why didn't the book end there? And if you were to read any commentaries on Leviticus, you'll find there they almost all ask that question. It, it just seems as though the book is rounded off at that point. Covenant curses, covenant, covenant blessings, and then the promise of restoration. He, these are the words which the Lord spoke through his servant at Mount Sinai, amen. Why is this material added in verse, or chapter 27? In some ways it seems odd. Uh, many commentaries, even those as, one as eminent as Matthew Henry, 
have called it an appendix to the book. Now, I'm not happy with that. You'll see that in a moment. I wouldn't agree with that. But I just bring that to your attention to say that people are puzzled about this chapter. Perhaps if only I read uh, someone saying, if only to avoid the negative ending. Although, was the ending really negative? You have promises for bless, uh, uh, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, but it doesn't end with that. He says, if you return to me, I'll return to you. It's a very hopeful ending. So I don't accept that argument. Well, we do see, and I, I do accept this, that uh, the theme of redemption is resumed, which was the, uh, the emphasis of uh, chapter 25. And so it was implicit in 26. It comes to the fore again in chapter 27. That's something that is helpful to notice. But even then you could say, well, as, a, as an emphasis, a way to emphasize redemption, here's an appendix. Is it not better, I would argue, to see the wisdom of the divine method and to seek to understand in what way this chapter fitly concludes the book of Leviticus? Not as, not as an appendix, treating chapter 26 as the true conclusion, but chapter 27 as the true conclusion. Uh, In other words, if there was no chapter 27, there could be no book of Leviticus. The book would be unfinished. The idea here is that of the free will offering of those who are redeemed. Perhaps uh, the Lord is saying here, a man wishes uh, to devote himself in service to the tabernacle. Now, don't worry about all this talk of the valuation. That's secondary. That's not the main point here. The main point is, Uh, The Lord saying, suppose a man wants to devote himself, a member of his household, in the service of God. Now, in all that the Lord said in Leviticus, there was never a requirement that a man would do this. The law never says that a man must do this, but perhaps he wishes to do so. Perhaps he wishes to go beyond the law. He may. He may, if he does so, of his own free will and from faith. Or perhaps he wishes to offer an animal in the service of the tabernacle. Or perhaps his house or his field. You see, that's the thought and and the progression of thought that we find in chapter 27. Perhaps he wishes to do this. Well, he may. And let him do so like this. Is it not right that he be allowed to do so? Must we stop where the law ends or are we permitted to go further? This is what Matthew Henry says. Uh, After calling it an appendix, he then says this, which I think is is the better way to view it. He says, perhaps some devout, serious people among them might be so affected with what Moses had delivered to them in the foregoing chapters as in a pang of zeal to consecrate themselves or their children or their estates to him. Everything that the Lord has said has so affected them that they are they are overcome with feelings of devotion And of consecration and of thanksgiving. And they say in essence. What might I do for the Lord? And the Lord in anticipating that says. Well uh, I I am aware that some of you will have such feelings. Here is my reply. This is is how uh, Andrew Bonar puts it. And there is no language of appendix in Bonar. He says no wonder God takes up the subject of self-dedication. And the devoting of all that a man has. For might not anyone expect that the preceding views given of God's mind and heart would be constraining. You remember what Paul says, the love of Christ constrains me, constrains him to what? To obedience, 
to the consecration and the devotion of his entire life in the service of Christ. Might not, Bonar is saying, everything that you read in Leviticus chapters 1 through 26 be constraining? Upon the heart of the faithful. Might they not evoke feelings of devotion unto God? Even now? Bonar goes on. In this chapter, after the Lord has unfolded his system of truth. The impression left on every true worshiper is supposed to be. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? And now if thou askest. How the grateful feelings of thine accepted soul are to be met. Lo, here is provision made for their outpourings. I think that one line really captures it all. What shall I render unto the Lord for all thy benefits? All his benefits. Here is the answer. Here is the answer by which the outpourings of the soul are brought to be. What I'm saying and what Bonar especially is saying is that this chapter appears in this light to be the most fitting close of the book of Leviticus. Not an appendix, but the most natural conclusion imaginable. In fact, as I said, as I just said, the book of Leviticus would be incomplete without it, just as the New Testament has the same thought and would be incomplete without it in Romans chapter 12, for all that Paul says of the grace of God in chapters 1 through 11, we find him saying in chapter 12, verse 1, I read it already, but I'll read it to you again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see, he, 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 just like Moses in Leviticus, inspired by the same spirit, Paul is saying, in light of these large views of divine grace, constraining as it is, you unto obedience, evoking feelings of devotion. I am calling you to what is uh, but your reasonable service, that you would devote all that you have and all that you are to the Lord. First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we find the same thing. And this agrees with the morning sermon. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You've been redeemed, he's saying. Just as Moses was saying, you've been bought with a price. Even the price and the cost of God's, uh, the blood of God's own dear son, Jesus Christ. Will you not live for him? Will you not offer your life in his service? And so what appears to us is this, that large views of redemption and grace stir up in the hearts of the redeemed strong feelings of gratitude, whereby we ask, what might I do for God? And viewing the chapter like this, we find not only the answer, or suggestions at least, but we find certain principles which are offered in, in uh, response to the question or, or in answer to the question. And the first principle, again, the question being, what might I do for God? The first principle or the first answer is that of the vow. You find that in chapter uh, 27, verse 1, what, or verse 2 rather, when a man consecrates by a vow. We shouldn't rush over that too quickly. The first thing that we can say about a vow is that it's voluntary. This is the thing that I keep or that I've been stressing. It's not something that a man is constrained to do. The Lord isn't saying uh, make your vows. But he's saying that you might. He's saying that you're able to do this. You might do this. 
And you even likely would do this. Matthew Henry says we should not only ask what we must do, but what we may do for the glory and honor of God. Isn't that a nice way of putting it? Not only what we must do, but what we may do. Oh, Lord, what might I do? What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits? And that's what a vow is all about. If you've ever wondered, what is a vow about? Well, a vow is about this. It is offering ourselves in the service of God. It is something that is voluntary. It's something that's free. It's even something that is extraordinary. And, and you might even get that sense uh, from uh, the verse, uh, at least in the footnote. When a man consecrates by a vow, and in my footnote at least it says, or makes a difficult or extraordinary vow. This is something extraordinary. Something which goes beyond the normal course of obedience. As though uh, you can imagine a man is saying the Ten Commandments are wonderful, but they're not enough. I wish to give more to the Lord. Can you imagine in days like this where men don't even know, let alone obey the Ten Commandments? But the heart which is redeemed by grace wishes to go further. He wishes to express his gratitude and his thanksgiving to God. God has done great things for me in redeeming me. What might I do for him? That's what the vow is all about. The other, well, uh, not the other, but one of many things I might say about the vows is that the vow is especially to be seen in this context and more broadly in the context of the service of God's worship. These are the best vows. These are the most fitting vows in connection with the idea of redemption. That is not to limit the vow to that, but it is to say the vows which we take are best taken in connection with worship. What else can we say? Well, the vow is something which ought to be kept. If a man makes a vow... If he's driven uh, in the extremity of his of his feelings of gratitude to God to make a vow, then he ought to keep it Uh, to use the common language of the day. No take backs. There ought not to be any take backs. What we offer to the Lord, we should give to him. Let him let him who vowed keep his vow. There are, of course, vows which ought not to be made. We should never offer to God more than we can reasonably give. Nor should we offer to God what is already his. We see that, for instance, in the case of the firstborn in the old covenant. There are vows which can be broken by means of redemption in the old covenant or if by reason of our inability or the unlawfulness of the vow. Here is, some, here is something to observe, uh, which is quite surprising, at least to me, the Lord's generosity and mercy, at least in the old covenant. He knows that we are apt to repent of our best feelings and of our vows and takes pity on us and our weakness. He says, if you make the vow, well, uh, that's good. Uh, but if you wish uh, to buy, if you offer something to the Lord, but if you wish to buy it back, well, you may under these conditions. You can redeem it. You can buy it back. I'm saying that, well, we're repenting. At least the old covenant saints were in the Lord is taking pity on them in their weakness. He's. He's making allowances for you, but I, before it. But I ask you, as Bonar does, which of these was the best feeling? The man who was carried away in the extremity of feeling to promise great things to God. Is that man at his best? Or is it man when he's calmed down and he says, you know, Lord, I think I might have gone a little too far. No. It wasn't the man who said I went a little too far. It's the man... Well, the best feeling is the highest feeling. That's what I'm saying. With respect to God. Not always with respect to man, but with respect to God. Man at his best is when he's offering most to the Lord. 
There is also the rule of honesty, which is the rule of the New Testament. Let a man say what he means and mean what he says. That's not just the law of the vow, but that's the law of life. In other words, you're not only honest when you take a vow. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus exposes that in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. No, you're always honest. And in fact, you're so committed to honesty, Jesus says and James says, that it all but renders the vow unnecessary. All but. Let, let me emphasize that. In other words, if you thought the purpose of the vow was an opportunity to be honest, then the vow is unnecessary. You should rather, view, because you're always honest. At least that's what a Christian is and he ought to be. But we should view the vow as something that it rightly is. It's something that goes beyond. It's something extraordinary. It's something that you're promised to the, to the Lord uh, in the extremity of your devotion that you will do for him. That's what a vow is. Let me read a few lines from our confession. Westminster uh, Confession of Faith uh, has a chapter, an entire chapter on oaths and vows. It says that a vow is that which is not to be made to the creature, but to God alone. An oath is something you make to man. A vow is something you make to God, a promise to God. And that it may be accepted. See how much this agrees with everything I just said. That it may be accepted. It is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty in ways of in way of thankfulness for mercy received or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties or to other things so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. That's what a vow is. And yet there there are restraints. It closes like this. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power or for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God. So much for the vow. Well, by the way, you asked for an example. An example would be membership vows. No one is required to make those. He does so voluntarily, but let him who makes the vow keep the vow. There are other examples, obviously, that of the marriage vow. But, 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 but even here, the sense is something that goes even beyond that. As I said, a promise that you make to God. Lord, this is something I, I promise to do for you. It's a rule I promise to live by. It's something that you notice in the life of a man like Edwards, his resolutions. You could call them, in a sense, vows. Uh, that's the kind of thing. Perhaps something you privately prayed or you jotted down in your journal. Again, don't see the best feelings as the worst feelings. They actually were the best. Or excuse me, the highest. The highest were the best. They really were. The second principle is variety. So with respect to the vow, the kinds of things that we might promise to God or the kinds of things that we might do for God are as wide and various greatly as the world is. And as far as the bounds of our life go. What you notice in this chapter is how many ways a man might serve the Lord. The many ways whereby he might promise to do something for the Lord. In other words, there are many ways whereby a man might give expression to this feeling. And really, I think many of them are always appropriate. For it is always fitting for a man to devote himself to the Lord in whatever way he is able. Likewise, his house. Did you notice that as well? Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord. Well, that's the sort of thing the fathers ought to do. 
We ought to say to the Lord, as they said in the Old Covenant, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Do you realize that's a vow? You're saying, this is what I am constraining myself to. I am dedicating the whole of my home to the Lord. And then let, let a man keep his vow. Let his house uh, be a kind of little church, a place consecrated in the service of the Lord. Let it be a place where God's word is read and where God's name is worshipped and his laws are obeyed. What about this? A man's money. Did you notice that as well? Verse 30, and the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Do you see how many ways we might serve the Lord? They're not mutually exclusive. All of these are appropriate. Let a man dedicate his life. Let a man dedicate his children. Let a man dedicate his house. Let a man dedicate his money to, the God, to God. To promise to give him, uh, in this case, a tenth. There's a picture of this which is painted for us in Acts. And we'll have time in due course to consider that in the evening. Where the, the, the early church practiced this in a radical form. Everything they had, their lives, their possessions, uh, they gave in the service of God. They were so committed to the welfare in the, the infancy, infancy of the church. It is a picture, I'm saying, of Leviticus 27 in practice. All that I have, all that I am, I offer in the service of the Lord. Could you imagine living like that? The kind of life and the kind of opportunities that the Lord would open for you. There's a third principle, and it's the final principle. It's the principle of redemption. The idea here is what may be redeemed and what may not. In many ways, that's how you could view this entire chapter. Having introduced the idea of redemption, the Lord is saying, well, this could be redeemed, but this can't. Certain provisions are made here for redemption. The buying back of what was offered to God. You remember, that's what redemption means. It's, it's buying back or or, or taking back. Perhaps it was needed after all, the man thinks. Uh, perhaps I was driven in the extremity of my gratitude to promise more than I ought to have. Perhaps a man simply sunk back into lower feelings of devotion. Can we not all relate to such things? We thought we promised more than we could give. How easily, how easily this happens. And I'm surprised I stayed again, frankly, to find that God is accommodating this. You see, he doesn't always say no take backs. In fact, I only find him saying that once in verse 10. In so many cases, he's saying, you know, you might break your vow like this. You might redeem what you gave. Do it in this way. Buy it back under these conditions. And so there are certain things which can be redeemed in the old covenant at the very least. But did you also catch this? That there are certain things which can't. Yes, some things can be redeemed, but some things cannot be redeemed. Let me emphasize that especially. An animal for sacrifice, for offering. It's holy, the Lord says. It cannot be redeemed. You may not buy it back. Now that seems straightforward since what is at stake is offering in the tabernacle. And what would happen if man was always buying back what he gave in order that the offerings and the sacrifices uh, would be given on the altar? But what's more fascinating and alarming to see is the language used for that which is devoted. 
You find that in verse 28. No devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast. You notice that both man and beast or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. The devoted thing, that which was marked out for destruction. Here is the rule and listen well. No redemption. Can you imagine? And yet the rule seems to be the same in either case. Either the animal marked out for sacrifice on the altar or the sinner doomed to die. Devoted by the Lord for destruction. Marked out for wrath. Consumed by his wrath. Something which could not be redeemed. Something which could not be bought back. In both cases, that which is offered is devoted for destruction. There is no turning back, whether the offering for sin or the sinner himself. Now, just think about that. Think about what it means to say no redemption, no possibility of redemption. It's the Lord himself saying, for my part, I am thankful for this. I am thankful that the Lord has said it, that he's declared in certain cases there's no redemption. For if man could buy back the very means of his redemption, he may. Oh, but God says here is something that can't be redeemed. You can't steal the offering off the altar. You can't redeem the very means of your redemption. Nor can our tears bring down Christ from the cross, though they be shed by his own mother. No, indeed, here are things God says which are inalterable. No redemption, no turning back, no stealing the lamb from the altar or the lamb of God from the cross. So likewise, let us see and let me say with reverence that that which is devoted for destruction is set apart for judgment and cannot be redeemed. Here is, I'm saying, the fate of the wicked, the reprobate, those who deny Christ in this age. They are set apart. They are devoted. They are doomed utterly. There is for them no redemption. They will cry out on the last day in vain, but God will damn them forever. That's the message. That's what God is saying here. There are those who are devoted for destruction. Who are they? They are those who turn their back on the grace of God, who hear the message of salvation and harden their hearts in unbelief. The message of Leviticus, the message of the New Testament, the message of Hebrews and the Gospels. God is saying, I'm full of mercy. I love to redeem. I love to pardon. I love to forgive. Oh, that you might come and be saved. And the wayward sinner says, I have no interest. I'm not interested in you, Lord. I'm not interested in your grace. I'm not interested in your worship. Do you understand that such a person is marked out? He's devoted. He's doomed. There's no redemption. I say this with an awful reverence. The most awful words that will be be uttered to them is this. No redemption. Doomed to die. You see, it's not just that they're not redeemed, it's that they cannot. Not even God would redeem them, though he's full of tender mercy and grace. Though he might redeem them, for Christ's blood is surely sufficient for them. He does not, for they are marked out for destruction, as is evidenced by their unbelief. Doomed to die, to suffer the fate of all unredeemed sinners. Here is a truth almost too awful to utter, and yet we must Must we not? 
Or must we? It's one which we must utter, I'm saying. God in his justice will damn the wicked. That's the message of the Bible. That's the message of Leviticus. God will not redeem everyone. Only some. And I ask you honestly, as you adore God for his mercy and his grace, do you equally adore him for his justice? Those whom he has redeemed, do you adore him for his justice? Is not the glory of God magnified in the damnation of sinners? Haven't I said that before? God is glorified in the damnation of sinners. And let the wayward sinner hear such a thing and repent and turn and be saved. Lest he be glorified in his own damnation. Do you, do you, do you adore him for his justice? As you adore him for his grace? Do you see how the Bible always teaches both truths? Though let me be quick to say, and thank God for it, the emphasis is always upon the just, uh, I mean the mercy and the grace and the love of God. But let us not forget or let such things obscure the reality that there are those who are devoted. They are, dist- they are, they are set apart for destruction. But with that thought, we've concluded Leviticus. A book, a book which I trust has blessed us in so many ways. We've seen here, as uh, we've seen, uh, as we've seen here throughout the book, uh, an emphasis on the commands of God. Verse 34, the last verse. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. The commands of God all throughout. This is what the Lord is saying. He wants us to do. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to esteem his law. He wants us to come to the altar of grace and meet him there that we might find grace to help in time of need. How thankful we are for the commands of God. So we've also seen the way of the wayward sinner painted. The the portrait of such a person is painted throughout the book as as a warning to the wayward sinner, uh, but also as a means of, of sustaining and preserving the righteous. The awful doom that awaits the wayward. And even the judgments that befall him in this life. But more than anything else, God has shown forth in this book of pictures his own nature, his mercy, his love, his grace, his justice and his truth, his might. The way that glorify the the way that God is glorified above all in the salvation of sinners. And above all, he has painted for us a mighty picture of Jesus Christ, the savior of sinners throughout this book. And I ask you as you read again. I'm calling it, I, I think I'm borrowing this from somewhere I don't remember. Have you seen Jesus in this book of pictures? And have you delighted to see him? Jesus Christ is portrayed to us in the book of Leviticus. And if he's been seen by you, well, then I ask you this question. Have you been made to worship him by this book? Has it brought about in your hearts a desire to worship the Lamb of God who was slain for your sin? Who was marked out for destruction. Who was devoted. His flesh became a devoted thing. So that you might be saved. Has it all given you a greater desire. That he might be worshipped in a regular and orderly manner. That's a very Presbyterian thing to say isn't it. And yet I think that's what Leviticus is telling us. I think that's what the New Testament is telling us. You ought to worship him in just the way that he's, he's told us to worship him in, this, in his word. And such indeed is the closing thought of this book. The way uh, large views of his grace, the grace of the Son of God, 
slain for sinners, constrains us to gratitude, constrains us to obedience, and causes us to ask, for all that is given to us, what might we give to him? Amen. And let us return thanks to God now in the hymn of praise, standing together and sing, uh, hymn of response, excuse me, hymn 338. And please stand. <laughs>